Camps is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. I get excited for every week's guest, but this one more so than usual because I'm already excited that he's agreed to be on the show and I've already learned so much so I guarantee you're going to learn a lot about a guest whose name comes up a lot in our community so today's guest has played for the Scarborough Solars and represented Team Ontario at Canada Games he was the owner of the Overkill famous volleyball brand he was a big part of our pro beach tour he's been the director of Camp Matawaska he's coached club with Durham Attack and Leaside he's been a coach with Team Ontario uh, not only through our HBC and Canada Cup programs, but also at Canada Games. He's coached our youth and junior national team, and he recently got back from working with our National Excellence Program, and he's coaching with the McMaster Men's Volleyball Program. Please welcome to the show, Ian Ebbett. Ian, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally connected and we can make this happen. I'm pumped to be here. I feel like I've skipped over a lot in your bio, but eventually we got to start the interview, and I'm sure we'll cover some more points. But uh, I think the big thing to start with is just... How did you become a volleyball guy, first of all, and then we can take off where your journey's taken off and you've worn many hats in our sport, but what made you choose volleyball over maybe some other sports you were pursuing as a kid? That's a great question. I, I reflected on this when uh, I was thinking about my, my love for the sport. I was very fortunate. I went to a, uh, a small public school in Pickering. Uh, it was called Woodland Centennial, and it was actually right beside Dumbarton where I ended up going to high school. And I was really lucky because uh, I had two extremely good volleyball coaches in my elementary years. Uh, the names are Andy Diamond and Phil Osnick, who are still both legends in Durham Region. Um, and they were super big on volleyball, so I was very fortunate to get a good introduction to the sport where I really enjoyed it, but actually really good coaching. And then, I, and then basically that was what started my love for the game. And then I went to the Martin, um, and uh, I was... I don't know if volleyball found me or I found it. I played every sport in high school. I loved all sports. Um, but then I met a guy named Mark Roberts, who I'm sure a lot of the listeners of the show know. And Mark and I just connected on a personal level. We became great friends and we shared our love for volleyball. And we played it all together through high school. And then I was fortunate enough to be around some great volleyball players uh, at that time. Some throwback names, Edgar Lueg, Mike Stray, Dave Taylor. These guys were all incredible volleyball players and a couple of those guys played on the team that the Hernan coach that won the uh, junior national championship for Hernan coach club for the solar. So around uh, a ton of great people, uh, a lot of good players, really good coaching influences. And then I was fortunate enough to sort of have my playing career grow from there. And I played Canada games in my grade 13 year at Dumbarton. So I think that's kind of where it started. But like most seeds that are planted, it started with good people at a young age where it made the game fun for me, uh, where I enjoyed it, met great people, and it just sort of took off from there. I'm glad you gave Mark Roberts a shout out there. The first time I met him, uh, it was after the Rough Riders practice after our, our club tournament, and me and Christian Redmond were in the car with him. 
And I forget what him and Red were arguing about, but Red's just like at a point where she's like, fine, do you want me to get out of the car? And Funk's just like, no, like I hate you right now, but I'm still going to give you a ride because I'm a nice guy. And it just kind of showed that Funk is like a caring and passionate guy, but more and more, he's just this genuine dude. So it's kind of funny that you two were shoulder to shoulder playing volleyball growing up. Um, yeah, he was my first uh, beach partner too, which was kind of cool. And it all stemmed from our time together in high school. So that kind of shows the reach of what Solars was, because now growing up in your community, you would probably be a Derm Attack guy, or there's a few other clubs east of the city, but uh, it seems like everybody went to Solars because they were the spot, but it also had like a pretty big reach, right? Like when you played Solars, how many different high schools would have combined to make that one like stud club team? Well, basically east of living in, in Toronto, um, and even Scarborough Solars with East Toronto, uh, would have been the Anarapical Wolves, I think. And Durham. So if you were anywhere in between the two, you, you kind of went either way. So the, the Solars were a huge club. Um, at the time, they were a powerhouse in club volleyball. Um, you know, I'm dating myself here, but we're talking like late 80s, early 90s. There wasn't a lot of clubs, but the clubs that were there were very good because they captured a lot of athletes. I was very fortunate, and I didn't realize this until afterwards. Like most things when you're young, you don't realize how fortunate you are to be around great people. But my first coaching club um, at the older ages was Mike Bogarski and uh, I think most people would know that name now because it's one of the most prestigious awards that the OBA gives but Mike was a, a gregarious uh, man he was an incredible coach and he was the first person that ever talked about uh, imagery or mental focus or training at the time I had no concept of what he was talking about nor did I even believe in him but the truth of the matter is that, again I was fortunate to be coached by incredible people early at my young ages. Um, yeah, the Solars were a phenomenal club. They were a big club. Um, a lot of great players played within club, a lot of great coaches. So uh, I remember Mark and I would take the go train to practice and walk uh, to from Goodwood Station to the gym. Um, I think it was King, actually. It was the school that we went to. It was uh, about a 15-minute walk from the go train station. And that's how we got back and forth to practice. But the quality of volleyball and the quality of coaching at least during my time with the Solars, was, was exceptional. Yeah, and just one more Solars question, because we've had Sulo on the show and Selena, and I've had many chats with uh, John Child about his club career growing up. With Solars, were you guys traveling a lot? Like, Child said it wasn't a big deal to put everybody in a van and drive to Rochester or go somewhere that, like, it wasn't just the Ontario circuit. Like, Solars was going to play all over and just look for good competition, whether it was in another province or in the U.S. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. And so... I traveled more with the Source at that level when I played double A. So the Source had a fantastic double A program. It was called Discovery. It was called the Satellite. That's the name of the team. And I played there for a couple of years. And quite frankly, I was just a, a small fish in a big pond of players there. A lot of former uh, university stars, a lot of former national team players. And that's when men's volleyball was huge. So, yes, we went to Rochester a lot. We went down to Miami. We went to Boston. We would travel a lot with that team. Um, in your club, in your junior and juvenile, or actually it was actually juvenile and junior years, uh, which is the language they used then instead of 15 U, 16 U, that type of thing, we did travel to Rochester a lot to play um, the bootlegger teams, and we were always trying to get good quality, but quite honestly, the quality of volleyball in the OBA at that time was exceptional. Um, the West Side program was, was the powerhouse as well, and pretty much from the semifinals on of every team, we were playing a who's to a volleyball provincially at that time. 
Awesome. Awesome. And I mean, you're not going to pump your tires and you're going to say you're a small fish, but at the end of the day, you played Canada games, which is a great accomplishment, no matter what era you're playing in. So in that time, what was the tryout process to be a team Ontario athlete and then get the nod to play for the Canada games team? Yeah. It was an interesting story for me because I was the last player selected on the team. I got told as such, and I used that as an, and it wasn't to me negatively, actually. I took it as an inspiring thing, but, um, so, yeah, they had trials at the time. A lot of them were at Millersville College campus on Military Trail. That's where we did a lot of our training. Um, the cool thing about that program was is it was longer than the program you have now. They, they started, started the group in the third year a lot in the gym of the four-year cycle. We trained all summer. We trained March break, Christmas break. Um, it was it was a significant uh, time. You know, you know, they had to give a lot of time to the program. And they were always bringing in different people, so there was always a, a competition for your spot, which was really cool. We had a bit of a coaching change uh, at the time. Originally, Keith Wadwick oversaw our program until they uh, gave us our, our head coach for Kennedy Games, who's been a tremendous influencer in my life and a great friend now is uh, Horace Stengel. He was our Kennedy Games head coach. So we, we basically trained for two summers. There was always people coming and going, like I said. And uh, so the level of competition in the gym was was extremely high. Um, Morris was was definitely a demander of excellence at all times and wanted to be the best version of ourselves. So you really never got a practice off, and, and I thought that culture was great for me. I'm someone that wasn't the most physically talented person in the gym in terms of height and size and such. I was a goofy-footed kid that could pass a little bit and found a way to play, but um, I think I earned my spot on the team because of, of the sort of fight and competitive instincts I had. I really wanted to be on that team. I mean, I, yes, I obviously have belonged because I made it, but I, I think I contributed in other ways that were equally as important to what I did on the court. Yeah, I was hoping you could give us an, an Oris story of what the practice environment feels like, because when we had a senior on the show, he mentioned that Orris to make him feel like the guy and he wanted him to perform and he wanted him to execute. But at the same time, if Sleener was hitting like his beach roll shots, he would call a timeout and tell him that he's not outside and this isn't sand and he needs to like go for it a little bit more and be aggressive. Right. So I think Oris really does walk the line where he's demanding, but he builds that belief in you. And I was wondering how did he do that uh, outside of a university team and with the team Ontario program? Well, I bought in on Oris the day that he bought in on me. So you're absolutely right. He was someone that if he believed in you, he can he supported you unconditionally. Uh, he did demand a lot of us, but I don't think that's a bad thing, to be quite honest with you. Um, our practices were very high level. Uh, Boris didn't make practice complicating. He made it competitive. Uh, a prime example is he was big on a, on a plus five or plus ten drill. And to simply put it, he put you on the left side. You'd have to hit against defensive six. And until you got a plus five or a plus six or a plus whatever he Assigned, you didn't get out of the drill. So you had to find a way. And if you've ever done that drill, it's extremely exhausting, especially if you don't get off to a good start. He didn't let you out of the drill. He developed a resilience. He created adversity. He was demanding, but in a supportive way. Um, I, I, for myself, really connected with Oris because I, I just valued what he was teaching us. And, and it was uh, a way for me to find a solution. And I really thank him for that. Um, but yes, practices were high level. He was big on the physical consequences back then, so uh, we were in really good shape. Because <laughs> when we did next year, we paid for it on the floor, but not in a bad way. Um, coaching has changed now, I think, but um, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity that Oris gave me to be on that team and for what he taught us as young men. 
Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. And even for you, for lack of a better term, to be like one of the guys on like the bottom half of the roster to still feel valued and still have a leadership role, I just think shows that Oris really does believe in people and he's going to treat everybody on the team, you know, fairly. I, I think the show, I always say, likes a good name drop, but mostly it's me. But can you just talk about who else would have been on that Canada Games team that you were a part of? Yeah, sure. Uh, Dexter Abrams was on there from Scarborough. Uh, Juan Cordova was on there. Um, our setter was John Caleras. Jacob Victoric, who at the time was one of the most physical athletes in the country. He played middle for us. Um, I don't want to forget people, but there are others on the team. I'm kind of drawing a bit of a blanket. Oh, um, uh, John Hammer. Uh, again, these are names that maybe guys don't remember now, but at the time, these were the guys that I played with that were all exceptional athletes and all a bunch of great guys. Our Canada Games experience was amazing. Um, we, we finished fourth. Uh, Canada Games, which I think was a, maybe a little below what we wanted, but to be honest with you, the top four were all exceptional and they were great battles. And, and I got to play against some legends of the game now. And the late great Dale Iwanashko uh, played for Manitoba at the time. Um, I played against him. Um, there was uh, Randy Gingera played at that time. Like it was just sort of a who's who across the country of volleyball, and uh, it was a great experience. We played in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. Um, in 87 when when we were part of a winter game uh, but it was just it's still one of the highlights of my playing well it is the highlight of my playing indoor playing times and it led to my passion which you know we'll probably talk about later but I literally we coached I was a member of the 2017 Canada Games staff so 30 years after I played I got to coach again which was just an incredible experience yeah amazing amazing and, and at the risk of skipping ahead because we do have a lot to cover you were also in the early era, or maybe someone argue like the peak of beach volleyball in our province. And I was wondering if you could take us through that, because I think a lot of the names you just shared are going to cross over again. But what was uh, some of your early experiences with beach volleyball? Because there's there's a lot of layers to what you contributed there. But maybe just start with like playing and how the beach scene was when it, it really took off there early with Ontario. Yeah, the beach scene when I started was, was cool. It was intimate. It was, uh, it was a bunch of guys that loved volleyball. Um, we set up every weekend at Bali Beach, right below the club, um, which, uh, again, in itself is an incredible spot of the beach community. It's, uh, so every weekend we would go down, we'd set up a net early in the morning, and, and uh, we would literally play all day every weekend. And, and that, that just sort of grew. Um, and then it became sort of a who's who of beach volleyball started playing, and that was pre the, the Labatt Pro Tour that John May created. Um, we played some weekend stuff. We traveled. We also went to Rochester for beach volleyball down back then as well. Uh, I played with Mark for most of my um, beach playing days. And the truth is, Mark just got better than I did. And, and I went on to different areas of being involved in the game. But we played for years down there. It was social. It was fun. You know, you'd finish the day playing volleyball all day and we'd hang around with the same people that night and, and share some uh, some wobbly pops and laugh and, and trip each other. And it was it was phenomenal when I think of the athletes that were back there at that time. It was a who's who of, of volleyball on the beach in Canada. Uh, Ontario had a ton of amazing beach players down there. And that's when John himself, John May himself, was a great player. He, he played a lot back then. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was it was still probably one of the best memories I have of playing back then. And then the tour started, and then it got a little bit more formal. And then that same bunch of guys that hung around and played on the weekend started playing against each other in a very high-level professional uh, beach tour that that, uh, that John made through his company, Motion created. Yeah, do you remember your 
first impression or your first uh, hearing of John May is going to start this pro tour because like, like you said, he's competing and he's playing at Balmy Beach. But when we've had him on the show, he's talked about he saw what the AVP was doing and he thought, why not in Canada? So was there whispers of this happening or did just an announcement start? Or what was like your first taste that there was going to be a, an Ontario Pro Tour or a Canadian Pro Tour? Well, I think John, not only was John a great beach volleyball player, but he's an even better promoter. And if you know John as well as I know you do, uh, he's a visionary. He, he saw the opportunity to grow the game. He saw the quality of the athletes that were playing here. And John is no small thinker. He's a big thinker. And he thought, if they're doing it, why can't we? And, uh, you know, it's incredible what he did for the growth of this sport at the beach level in our country. Um, he brought in a significant amount of money. We're talking millions of dollars into it at the time, which would have been a fringe sport. I mean, I, I think about beach volleyball now, and people don't see it the way I saw it back then. But at the time, beach volleyball was sort of this cool thing that other people did. It wasn't as mainstream as it is now. I think through John's vision of seeing what we were doing, seeing what they were doing and trying to make it better, because that's kind of how he always thought things. He was always a big thinker. Um, his vision led to our opportunity to have a professional tour in our country. And uh, and he's the big reason why the FIVB came to Toronto. Yeah, let's walk through your timeline, because I've mentioned a couple times that you've worn many hats. So just through the, the Ontario beach scene, you were a player, you were a tournament director, you were an announcer, you were a commentator, like you, you got to go to Pan Am Games and be contributing there. Like, what kind of started the ball rolling from you to go from player to then helping like organize and helping like promote events? Like, just walk us through that journey that you've had through beach volleyball. Well, leaving the game was easy. It just got better than I did, you know. Um, <laughs> Mark and I played, and you know, Mark was a dynamic, uh, a dynamic player. And part of Mark and I's draw to each other, is, besides our obviously incredible friendship, was we were both kind of big personalities. And that's another thing that I credit John for is he he wanted to surround the tour with personalities that would make the game interesting for people to to watch. So if they were walking down the boardwalk, and he wanted them to see what we were doing. And so when I played with Mark, we were we were good until about the quarterfinals, and I I couldn't get us past there. So we finished fifth a lot, or that's when the old double elimination format was in. So the old joke was O2 barbecue. And if you were done twice, you were having a beer and, uh, and a sausage up on the top of the Bali beach deck there. But so I knew I wanted to stay involved in the sport. I was a big believer in beach volleyball. It was, I think towards that stage of my life, I loved it more than indoor. I wanted to find a way to stay involved. And, and uh, so I went from playing to um, being involved with Oris. Uh, uh, and I um, started a company together called Sandbox Productions, and we were the original Toronto hosts of Beach Volleyball for the OVA. They had a different model back then where um, the OVA believed in beach volleyball growing, but I think even them, they weren't sure at the time. So basically there was different hosts across the province that we would run the tournaments in conjunction with the OVA, but we were the ones that ran the events. So Orson and I were the Toronto hosts, and that friendship grew. Uh, we worked together on the weekends and planned youth and adult age events. And then we started working together um, as, with tournament directors in that format. And then we started to work together on the pro tour and the national domestic tour that traveled across the country. But we were the tournament directors and Horst uh, Tagana. Horst is a phenomenal play-by-play commentator, as most people know. I think if you played or went to any beach volleyball event in the early, sorry, late 90s, 2000s, Horst was the voice of beach volleyball. So I had a great mentor, a great friend. At Banter, we kind of sort of worked off each other a little bit. So it started off with Orson doing a lot of the play-by-play. I would do a lot of the commentary in between. Um, and then we got to work with, uh, we had a great crew for a while with DJ Mike and, and Dan Gallagher. 
where uh, John formed this sort of entertainment troupe that traveled uh, the country and, and hosted the FIVB events in Toronto. I went from player to tournament uh, promoter to tournament director, and then um, I had a great opportunity in 1999 to actually be the live play-by-play commentator for the night for the Pan Am Games in, in Winnipeg, which was an incredible opportunity for me. It was an amazing opportunity for me to commentate at a large at a large scale because Conrad Lineman and Jody Holden actually won the gold medal uh, at the 99 Pan Am Games. So it was a great accomplishment for them. It was great for the growth of our sport in the country, and it was really cool to be a part of that experience. So yeah, I definitely worn a few different hats, but it's uh, again it's my fortune by being around a great bunch of people and the great mentors and people that believed in me and gave me opportunity. And uh, it was a really fun decade of my life. Yeah, that's that's so interesting to hear about. And I, I should maybe watch my mouth and say the golden era beach volleyball because I think what what the women have done recently with Heather and Brandy were the number one seed in the world at one point. Uh, Melissa and Sarah have, have won a world championship and, and they won the Edmonton event. And I think anyone who was in Edmonton saw that our, our sport is in a good place. But when I look back at those Toronto lists that you were a part of when the FIB and the Pro Tour were combined and to see people like Karch and Emmanuel and see John and Mark battling with teams like that and to see even like... Todd Rogers is a great name in our sport, but he would lose in the qualifier and to see all the Canadian names there. Like when the FIB stop was in Toronto, it was at a time where the FIB was the who's who were playing in those events. Right. So what did you think of that when, when John accomplished that and got the FIB partnership and now the best players in the world were playing and you got to be part of that event? Well, it was incredible. So it, it was the Super Bowl of beach volleyball at the time. Um, to think that the best players in the world, uh, including our own players who were some of the best in the world, had an opportunity to play on on uh, Ashbridge's Bay is phenomenal. To even think about it, it was a it was an incredible event, and to see the best athletes, male and female, play in front of you was unbelievable. And I think it grew the fans' appreciation of the sport and got them out of this sort of you know bikini phase and to the holy these are incredible athletes and it's an amazing sport. And uh, yeah. It was phenomenal. The level of volleyball was next level. And for me, I was a huge fan of the AVP at the time. So to be able to be, you know, right beside Karch or I was, Sinjin Smith was my favorite player growing up, you know, Randy Stoklos, and then all the influences of the best players around the world, it was next level and uh, really fun to be a part of. And uh, again, I think the success of what's happened today always needs to look back on what happened in the past. And I, I'm, I'm sure there's direct correlations of the value that was gained from those events and the belief in the sport that led to the growth of it now. And one cool thing that actually happened from your involvement in beach that I, I won't call a spinoff, just another kind of lane that you were involved in and excelling in is, is overkill the brand. And, and I think what you were able to accomplish with, with Freddie there, can you just tell us how that relationship started and how that started to pop off? Because uh, I, I have really fond memories of, of overkill as a kid and obviously what they're still able to do today, but to get a volleyball brand to be the Labatt beer case sponsor, I thought was like a huge thing for our sport. And I want to know like the behind the scenes of what went into like getting overkill to that level of a brand that Labatt wanted to be associated with it. Well, I, what I would say is, is I would start by saying is uh, Fred, 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 uh, for Fred Coops is, is the uh, still owner of, and his brother, Stephen. Uh, and now they are, they work with uh, Ching and Canuck, but, when I met Fred, it was uh, shortly after his time at Waterloo when he were, played for the Waterloo Warriors. And he had created this very cool uh, logo called Black Plague. It was the team had sort of embraced this uh, Black Plague persona, and he had developed these logos and, and um, sold T-shirts to support. 
incredible graphic uh, design person, and but his truth, his real incredible talent is his love for the game and his, his support of others. So uh, I created this Black Lake thing, which is really cool, and then um, he, through the support of his parents, the Coops family are an amazing family, really allowed Fred to chase his dream, which was to create this cool brand of, uh, of, a, of a company called Overkill in the beach where Fred grew up. Um, we were at 2130 Queen Street East, and, uh, and and that's where it all started. We had this small little shop in the beach, but before that, Fred was already doing these cool overkill graphic designs and logos. And then he, through his vision uh, of wanting to create something that people could connect with, uh, he developed this amazing brand called Overkill. And uh, the shop started in, opened in 1991. I worked there for 19 years. Uh, I was one of the three owners of the time. Um, Fred and his brother Stephen and myself. Fred and I knew each other through volleyball and were friends. And uh, at the time, I was it was before I started in the fire service, and uh, it was actually right around the same time. And Fred knew I had a bit of a retail background, and just said, "Hey, listen, I'm thinking about opening this shop in the, in, uh, in the beach, and you know, would you like to get involved? I think it'd be kind of a good fit." And we took a leap, or Fred took a leap with me, and and I started working with him at the store, and it just took off from there. Um, you know, Fred is not only as good as he is at graphic design, he's a visionary in terms of um, well, he wanted Overkill to be a name in not only beach volleyball, but sort of every cool, fun, uh, I, mean, I wouldn't say extreme sport, but other sports that weren't maybe, you know, as big in our, in our culture team. So uh, we were involved in um, mountain bike riding. Uh, Fred had a, our logo on a race car. Like, he just wanted our brand to be worn by people that would want to wear, I will say this, would want to wear this shirt on a Wednesday because it was their favorite one in their, in their drawer. And that's what he did. And um, and it just took off from there. And we were really fortunate that people supported us, saw the value. Like, Overkill at the time was kind of like your favorite small fringe band you could listen to. It wasn't mainstream, but it was cool to wear it. And we got a connection with the community in the Toronto Beach area, and they were super supportive of us. And, and really, the rest just took shape from there. A great, a great time of my life, though, and uh, and I have nothing but fond memories of my time with Overkill. And I couldn't be more proud of, of what Fred developed in our volleyball community. Yeah, I think it was great to connect with you and get you on the show. And then when you started sending over some pictures about your journey, and I thought one cool thing was was the Overkill team you guys had and what contributed to that, because obviously. You know, having uh, Paul Hussin and Mark Dunn and some other people on the squad and Marquise obviously probably being the, the most famous one. But you guys had a certain criteria that you wanted to be what you wanted athletes to represent the brand. Right. So just tell us about like one. Why did you believe that a team was going to be a necessary thing? And then what was the criteria or some characteristics you were looking for in an athlete that you wanted to support? Well, the best way to grow your brand is to put it on great people. And, and, and I don't mean great people with respect to these the people that win every week. And I mean people with high character, um, good values, and people that are going to grow your brand, sort of ambassadors on the, on the street level. And and we always wanted to put our stuff on, on people that had sort of great personalities that people wanted to gravitate to. So, you know, I already said it. I was partners with Mark. Mark was a larger-than-life personality and still is. If you've ever been around Mark, it's hard to feel bad afterwards. It's just full of life. Uh, Jim Cook was the senior state at the time. Tito was also a Waterloo warrior at Fred, and he had a deep relationship from before his time with us at Overkill. Jim was an incredible human being and a class gentleman. Uh, Hudson, uh, same thing. Uh, big lefty. Uh, you know, he's from the London area at the time, I believe. 
Cox. Paul Cox had a huge personality. Um, Mark Dunn, you know, at the time, Mark was a legend. Both Paul and Mark played for U of T at Ours. And, and Heath was, uh, was, was Fred's original beach partner on the, uh, when they played on the beach volleyball together. So these were all, you know, young, vibrant, cool people that were great ambassadors. And it was awesome to have our gear on them. And that sort of brought, brought brand awareness. And that's how we had to do it back then because we didn't have a ton of money to give to people, but we had product to put on cool people. And I credit the original, that was our original Overkill Pearl Beach group, and then it just led into our relationship with Mark and John, and Lukashek and Sween, and, and Gatsky, and then, you know, Casey McTavish, Kelly Whitaker, Ben, Pam, Elon Devon, Rich Van Dusen, Taylor Pischke, Melissa, and the list goes on and on and on, but it all started with putting cool stuff on cool people, and, and, uh, and people took notice. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to hear that what went in on the back end of this, because like you said, I think it's amazing to have a team and mention about like John and Mark and the other athletes you sponsored. But one of my coolest memories of Overkill was playing club. And you were if you were really lucky, you went to the tournament and there was going to be a table set up there that I think athletes today, they'll go to provincial championships or national championships. And obviously, the clothing table will be there. But you guys used to mission all over the province and you would show up at like the, the December club tournament. Right. So it just seems like you and Fred, but everyone else who was involved in the brand really cared about volleyball and you were going to spend a lot of time on the road a lot of time in hotels to make sure that any kid had access to it. you didn't have to be a G, uh, excuse me a gta kid to get access to your overkill shirt right well what grew the brand was us getting it out and, and uh i also want to credit Stephen with a lot of this too because people would sort of be in your behind the scenes to plan the logistics and he was the guy that had this literally had the spreadsheet open and we were like packing for seven different tournaments and I remember the lineup of bands outside the store on a late Friday night or early Saturday morning where we were loading the gear in and, and literally driving across the province but we needed we needed to do that we were very fortunate in the relationship that we had in the OBA they, they believed in us as being the official clothing supplier at the time and and they still are to this day right now and they believed in us so if we wanted to spread our name and our brand and we need to get the stuff out to the people that wanted our product and the people that were inevitably going to support our success, and that was the kids. Um, so, yeah, was it uh, was it glorious work? No. Was it necessary? Yes. I'm, I'm like, grateful that we did it. Absolutely. And then when you got to the gym and you set up your tables and you sat behind in your little white plastic chair and got to see kids all day long and meet parents and coaches, and not only were we in gyms over the province, but we were kind of part of the growth of not only our brand, but so cool so cool and then just to jump to a, another area that you've really excelled in and as i'm hearing your story it just makes sense what you're able to accomplish there so camp matawaska it combined your love with volleyball i mean overkill was a part of it uh i'm hearing rumors that you were responsible for building the beach courts there like it's uh, your, your passion your love of leadership uh, of life skills like it just seems like everything you're about you were able to leave as a strong part of what matawaska uh, is known for so Take us through that journey. When was the first time you went to Camp Madawaska, and then when did you eventually join the staff and start influencing, like the the mood and the feeling you get when you go to Camp Madawaska? Wow, well, we're going back here. This is cool. So uh, late in the late eighties, was either eighty nine or I think it was eighty nine. It was right. It was right after we were done Canada Games. The first time I'd ever been up to camp was uh, was with sort of an extension of the provincial team program and not formally, but we went up and we were kind of demo kids and, and, uh, and I loved that we were up there for a little bit. So the following year I went up and I remember um, 
I was an assistant coach my first year as is normal. That's kind of how everybody rolls in there unless you've been there before. And I remember sitting, if the listeners that have been in Ottawa will know the coaches lounge and there's a fireplace or there was a fireplace, the old coaches lounge now. I was sitting at the back of the room and, and that you always get assigned a new coach, your, your first year or head coach for me. And uh, my, my first head coach at Mattawaska that I worked under was Norm Brownstein, which is hilarious because that was the camp owner's son. Uh, the camp owners were Paul and Shelley Brownstein at the time, and that was their son. And so my first year I ever went to camp, I worked with Norm, which was an amazing experience. I did not know Norm, but he's also a huge personality. We became lifelong friends, and that was my first exposure to Mattawaska. And what I say to people about Mattawaska now is if you've never been there, you, you might not get it, but if you've been there once, you get it for life. And you just understand that you yourself, Josh, know you've been there. We're a big part of what we did there. So I fell in love with it right away. When I first got with Madawaska, um, there were no beach courts there. It was just a completely grass facility. I think at the time, there was like maybe mid-300, uh, maybe high 300. It was still, it was the overnight camping experience brand. Paul and Shelley had developed this incredible amazing outdoor experience that not only blended the love of volleyball but the love of of, of friendship and giving and, and being outdoors together it was the complete balance and I, I was also involved with overkill so overkill was also a clothing provider to Mattawaska at the time and at the time it was one of our bigger accounts so i sort of managed that account as well so there was a few things that just made sense i was involved with overkill we were doing the clothing for camp I'd gone up there and already had a really positive coaching experience, and I just loved what it was all about. So it sort of brought over the match here, but with the beach side, so um, we originally put in three courts. They're the courts that are still there when you drive up towards the office. And the idea at the time was was to sort of introduce beach volleyball to everybody, because at the time, honestly, Josh, there was this whole beach versus indoor thing. Like indoor coaches thought that kids that play beach, you were teaching them bad habits. They act differently. What were they doing? You know, why are the rules different? There was kind of a bit of pushback. And me coming from the beach side and playing on the beach tour at the time, I guess kind of being a beach guy more than an indoor guy anymore, I just felt like this was a cool opportunity to teach it. We were outside and we were in the sun and we were in the wind. It just made sense. So uh, credit to, to Paul who, you know, believed in in me and believed in growing our game and really believed in creating a positive, uh, you know, experience for the campers. She's like, sure, what the heck? So Ted Cole was the owner of Mattawaska at the time and, and Ted and Paul put these three courts in. And the original introduction to beach volleyball at Mattawaska at that time was every athlete would come through for about a 90-minute session with me and it was kind of an introduction to each. And we would talk about the rules being different and, and sort of the similarities. And we just sort of gave them an early exposure to beach. And we had a lot of success there. And then I said to Paul, you know what? I think it'd be kind of cool if we put in beach courts here and talk about a leap of faith. So if you've ever been to Mattawaska, you'll know where the beach courts are. It's not as distinct. It's this amazing setting of, of um, these beach courts in the middle of nowhere next to a highway that would make no sense if you were driving by. But uh, I have an amazing picture. It's one of my favorite pictures. And it's with the sun setting. And with this one night at camp now where they put all the beach athletes up on camp. And there was 750 of us up there. And we still didn't fill the size of the beach court with the sun setting. So they they believed in the idea. So Ed and Paul, with a significant financial investment, put these beach courts in. And I'll never forget the very first summer that we offered a beach camp. We had 
founded the original beach section head at camp, and uh, I, I was the one that was teaching beach. Um, I loved it. I spent all my time up there, and, and then as it grew, my role kept changed. I became a member of the leadership staff, which at the time was two people that have had a huge influence in my life, Gary Nutri and Keith Wadwick. They were already the members of that. We became the three amigos, and I was in that role for years. And then uh, the beach program continued to grow, and we had some incredible section heads. Um, Hernan was a section head one year, one year up there as well, and, and it just took off from there. I know I'm all over the map, but I'm trying to answer all your questions. So that's how my involvement with the camp started. That's how the beach volleyball side grew there, and uh, and the rest is, is sort of history. I've been 31 years there when Paul and Shelley built the camp. Um, I think it's about 17 years ago now that they did that. The new owners, or now current owners, uh, Howie and Saul, uh, they asked myself and uh, my wife Caroline if we wanted to become the directors of each, I'm sorry, of Madawaska Volleyball and All Sport Camp, and we were honored to do so, and, and that's how I spent, or we spent the last 15 years of our life. Uh, it was in the director roles of both camps, so I know that's a lot there, but hopefully I capture what you're looking for. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, started an amazing golf brand called Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B-J-S-O-N.com to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. Definitely, definitely. And you may have answered my, my next question because I feel like you've been in a lot of different roles. So you just have a lot of empathy and respect for what the coaches do. But when I was at Madawaska, I always really respected the fact that I never felt micromanaged, but you always knew what the main thing was. And Madawaska keeps the main thing, the main thing, like kids go to there to have a good experience. And like volleyball is almost secondary by like the activities they're a part of, the friendships they make, like just the off court stuff almost makes it just a great time to make friends, let alone the volleyball stuff, right? So I'm curious when you became a part of the leadership team, how did you guys decide that or what did this happen organically where these people give up a week of their lives to come coach and a lot of them are students and they're giving up big time, like going into like, they got to go to college or university the next week, but they all want to be a part of it. They want to coach, they want to be there for the kids and, and nobody feels controlled, but we all buy into the same thing. And that, that can't be happening by accident, right? So what's going on in these leadership meetings that you guys could keep like the main thing, the main thing for so many coaches and so many athletes when, when camp's packed there, there's a ton of people there, but everything's functioning the same, it feels like. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I would give Paul and Shelly a, a lot of credit for develop, developing traditions and, uh, and a sense of camaraderie and care and connection. And, and not only for the love of the sport, but really for the love of being around great people. And that's what made me fall in love with the place. So I guess to simplify your answer, and it's a, it's not that simple, but you create a great culture and people will come. And the strength of Madawaska is the people. Um, as big as it is, 
Um, ayahuasca is bigger than any one person. It is itself the uniqueness of, of the sport, being outside, the incredible facilities, um, the, being in nature, being with friends, um, and really just sort of simplifying life a little bit. And I, I remember in the times that I was the, the director and we would meet as a staff on the Saturday night for, for training, if I was to instill anything into our staff on that first night, it would be to enjoy their week they themselves, the coaches, create a fun environment for the athletes because really that's what they're there for. We only have them for a week. So if, if we really think that we're going to change a lot in how they play the game or, or their technical habits, I think that's a, the wrong path to go down. Create opportunities for kids to take a bit of risk, allow them to make their own decisions, um, and just enjoy your week and, and give to others in a way that you want them to give back to you. That would be the message. Now you insert all these incredible coaches, all these incredible human beings that gave up a week of their life for literally little to no pay. Nobody was there for those reasons. Everyone was there because of relationships that they'd already formed or the ones that they were excited to make. Well, you put that in your recipe and it's going to be a tremendous success. So we were so fortunate for the quality of people that came to camp, people that were selfless and giving. And, and really, it became a who's who of coaching and players and people in the province at all levels. They wanted to be there because it was a fun way to end your summer and start your fall. And uh, so I think that's the, the, the secret um, or, or what we tried to, the theme we tried to spread to our staff. And then really, you know, when you surround yourself with great people, you get out of the way. I used to liken myself to a general manager role, and that is, you know, you sign the good players and you get the good coach, and then you get the hell out of the way. And that's what I tried to do. Um, and I, I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, what you and Carrie were able to do there, I think it's it's amazing. And I hope you look back fondly because I, I think back in my time, obviously, it's hard to always justify to get up there. But any chance I get, I would go back in a second. I think what they've got going there is, is amazing. And I think you and Carrie definitely contributed to the foundation of that. I think we've waited long enough. Uh, full disclosure, you're going to be a returning guest. I don't think we've covered all the stories, but uh, when people see your name pop up. They're going to want to know some coaching stuff. So I feel like we should get into that. But uh, I do want you to set the, the record straight for us. How did you get into coaching? Because I think people uh, will remember you as a high-performance volleyball guy, and obviously you love the sport. But I feel like uh, your daughter got into volleyball a little bit late, right? So it didn't feel like you were trying to be a volleyball dad and really push her into it. But when did you guys kind of circle back and get into volleyball? And then when did you maybe start having more high-performance goals to pursue with your coaching? Yeah, you're right. Um, my daughter, Brooke, she was a, a hockey player. I'm nearly growing up through her early teen years, and, and I was a hot dad. And uh, we already lived in Durham at the time, and, and uh, the, the club, there was more than one club in Durham at the time, but the club that I would, ended up being affiliated with Durham Attack knew that I was uh, living out there, and it said, hey, you know, if you want to coach, we're here, we'd love to have you. And I was like, hey, I, I'd love to coach, but right now I'm just being a dad. And then our daughter literally came home at the end of her season that ended, and she said to me, Dad, you know what, I'm, I'm done playing. And I'm like, what? Really? And she said, Yeah, I think I, I wanna I wanna play volleyball, which was like at the time honestly my my jaw dropped because she'd grown up in Madawaska and worked in the tuck shop and literally didn't really show a lot of interest in actually playing the game. So I was like, Holy God, well sure. I mean being a parent, uh, all I wanted to do was support what she wanted to do. So um, that's when I got involved with Durham, but I didn't get involved with her with her 
coaching her directly. I wanted to be a dad. I didn't want to coach her. So she joined the club at her 15-year age, uh, which is definitely late for joining volleyball. And for the, there's young kids listening, I would suggest you start chasing your dreams, whatever they are, whatever you want, and it will, things will take shape on their own. So she decided to play in her 15-year year. She, the first year that she played, I believe she played for a coach named Paul McGrath. And, uh, and her assistant coach at the time was, I believe, Linda Nacarado, two incredible people. Um, and they were, you know, instrumental in her, her love for the game and wanting to play again. She didn't play a ton in her first year. She was athletic, but really raw. And unfortunately, she, she broke her wrist. She broke her scaphoid bone in her wrist because she didn't know how to dive and she went for the ball. And that was a complete debacle. And so she ended up breaking her wrist. So she didn't play a ton in her first year, but she still went to all the practices. She still, wanted to learn, wanted to be a good teammate. And that, her doing that allowed me to get back into into coaching or really that's my introduction into coaching. So the very first year I joined the club as a coach, uh, timing is everything. I, I got to work with, I think one of the most brilliant coaches I've ever worked with, his name was Kevin Williams. He was the head coach of the 18U girls team that year and, and they're a very famous drum attack team. They won five straight national championships. Uh, their nickname was Big Black. And uh, that was the first team I worked with. And uh, with a, our other system was Lindsey Goss. And it was a great team. That team was already amazing before I got there. And that's when I started coaching with the club. And um, we had a very successful year. We were fortunate enough. Rarely do you join a club in your first year. You win an 18 year national championship. But that's what happened. And um, I worked with Evan for a couple of years with that program. Uh, we kept the athletes that were 17 to 18 of second year. And then after that, I, I started coaching, kept coaching a mile in the club. But that was how I got started in Durham and uh, worked there. I think I was just thinking with this. I think I was at the club for eight or nine years, but I worked with Evan for a couple of years. And then I worked with uh, another great friend of mine, Curtis Nofillon. Was on the girls' side for, I think, five years. Because the last year that I coached girls, I actually coached with John Child at Lee side because later 18 new year at, at Leaside and that was a great experience uh, I already knew John we were good buddies so to be able to coach with him was a lot of fun then I switched over to the guy side and and um, and then I spent I think four or five years coaching there uh, on the men's side of the club and then uh, took on some different roles I wanted to be involved in sort of the club administration direction so I took on the team building stuff for the club uh, the technical director role for the club and, and was the VP of the senior teams Nothing but great things to say about my time at Durham and the people that I worked with. And I wouldn't be involved in the sport if it wasn't for the support and opportunity that they gave me. And that's really where my where my bug grew to become a better coach because I was around great coaches my entire time with the club. I worked with amazing people. Um, spent a ton of time with Mike Spleen, we're very good friends. Um, Mike's an incredible coach. He's a better human being. You know, if you're going to coach club, the advice I would give you is, is find coaches that you really like spend a ton of time with each other and, and that, that gets you through the tough time. So, um, and then with camp, obviously I was exposed to incredible coaches there and then my, my bug to, to become a better coach just sort of grew and I had some very good influencers in my life. Um, at the time, I, I got involved with the OVA High Performance Programs and I give Dustin Reed a lot of credit because Dustin gave me some solid advice and it was just like, you know, coaching isn't easy, and if you're going to get in it, you want to be good at it. You got to be able to long haul. So, he, you know, he said to me, "Actually, a lot of people come and go, and they and they don't stay in it long enough to to really grow." And, 
and they wanted gratification, and, and I didn't, I didn't want that. I, I truly wanted the best version I could be as a coach because I, one of my philosophies in life is just be the best version of yourself or whatever you do. So uh, I took some good advice from Dustin, but I was all in. So I started working at the high performance programs with the OBA and the women's side. And then when I moved over to the men's side, um, I got involved with Team Ontario, and and it just sort of took off from there. And, and I was very fortunate that uh, I worked with Matt Harris. Uh, Matt's also a significant influence in my life because he gave me an opportunity to be his assistant coach the first year I ever worked with the Team Ontario program. And uh, Jason Trepanier, he just recently had on the show, who I have the utmost respect for, also gave me an opportunity because, um, you know, he believed in me and, and um, gave me the opportunity to grow in the Team Ontario system, and it just sort of took off from there. Awesome. Awesome. And let's jump ahead to the Mac thing and how you got that role, because I feel like when we start talking about uh, the things you're passionate about, and I, I think the things that the community really thinks that you excel at, um, whether it's Team O or, or the national team or McMaster, I feel like that's going to overlap. So maybe just for our listeners, let's cover your, your entry into McMaster and then take a deep dive into some philosophies and pillars that you really believe in as a coach. So um, you're going through this Team O program, you coach Canada Games. How does the the McMaster varsity men's program opportunity come up, and how do you start working with Coach Preston? Well, Coach Preston and I, Dave and me, uh, we've been friends for over thirty years. I met Dave in Madawaska, um, so we're, we're going way back here. We were actually roommates on, uh, and it's actually had cabin when we were in our twenties. So um, I've known Dave a long time. Obviously, I've been a huge uh, fan of. And then admire, really, I think is a better way. Someone on the outside looking in and just saw the incredible program that David built at McMaster. And, uh, and we were friends, our paths have crossed a little bit, uh, not so much when we were younger, except for camp. And as I got a little bit older, and when I'm talking older, I'm talking late 40s, our, our friendship reconnected because Dave came back to camp, and, and which I was really fortunate, and took on a, a lead role for us with the technical delivery to the campers. We got a chatting. I would, I would often go to games and just sit on my own and, and watch and take things in. And then Dave and I, his friends, would meet afterwards and we'd have a beer and we'd chat. And he would ask me what I'd see and I, you know, tell him what I thought. And Dave is always going to listen and always wants to learn and is, is, a, is a great, he's a gentleman that takes in every word that you say and processes it and, and thinks about it and, and reflects on it. And it just sort of spawned this conversation of, you know, it'd be kind of cool if the opportunity ever presented itself to work with each other. And that's how it started. I remember Dave being at camp, and I, we were joking that we were almost, we were in our late 40s, and said, if we're going to do this, we should better do it sooner than later. And um, having been a fan of what David built, I felt a lot of my own personal values were, were very connected to what he was doing. So the, the synergy made sense. The location didn't, because at the time I lived in Coburg. Coburg and Hamilton are two and a half hours apart. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't because it was close or convenient, it was because I thought the I could bring some value, but really the values that Dave had there very, very much connect with who I was. So we made this decision that we would try to move this forward, and that was four years ago. Um, so I joined the McMaster program after the Canada Games were completed, which was in 2017. So the first year I joined McMaster was the fall of 2017, and um, I've been there four years now, or no, I'm in my fourth year now. It's been nothing but an incredible experience in terms of a professional development and growth opportunity as a person and a human, and to be brought into the fold of this incredible culture and program of excellence that Dave's created in Mac. 
Amazing. Amazing. I like how there's some overlap because we've had coach Preston on the show and I think he's one of our top 10 all time downloads and I'll go back and listen to it. Cause I, I learn a lot every time I talk to him and it's, it's cool to hear that you guys have a lot of similarities. So in an effort to try to create some takeaways for our listeners here, I think let's dive into some mental performance and team building stuff. Cause I think that's stuff that you're maybe known for in the community. And then we can talk about your other passions, but one cool example I have is when I was involved with the team Ontario program in HBC, you would be on the guy's side and one just daily habit. Cause I think mental goals and making a mission statement and just doing one classroom session, that's cool. But you always found a way to make it into this daily goal. And the one small example I would always see and remember is like Andrew Richards or Sebastian Lethbridge. If they left the gym for a water break or like they were, that was their break. They would touch the, top of the door to come back in and that was just a daily task that you guys had to like i'm checked back in i'm ready to go to practice and i'm wondering how do you create these or maybe you're not the guy who deserves credit for that maybe it's another coach on the team but like how would the coaching staff create these daily things where you not only did you value mental performance but it was going to be in the practice environment it was going to be in the drills it just wasn't this one classroom session like i said that oh now we're mentally tough like it was going to be something that we actually practiced and valued so how did you get creative with some of this stuff and how did you find ways to boil it down that the athlete could actually think about it every day sure so i, I don't know if credit is the right word because anything that you do at the coaching level you do together and collaboratively but we uh, i started some of this stuff back at durham and when i worked with the women's program and and uh, we, I remember that our very first time we did it, we developed a team call, mission statement, you can call whatever you want to be. But for us, it was our team identity or your teamality. But we had, we called it a mission statement back then. And, and the original exercise was we were going to put the athletes in the room, but it started off with them all writing one or two words on a Bristol board about what they thought the season should, should look like in terms of what are the qualities that will help us be successful. It wasn't goal-driven like we want to win this or we want to win that. It was like, what are the characteristics, behaviors, and standards that we're going to need to put in place to allow us to reach the goals that we want? And so the girls were great. They were all collaborative. You know, it's a great team-building and bonding thing to do, and they would all write the stuff down. And then we would try to narrow it down because a lot of it was was Frilly and Phil, but it didn't have a lot of teeth. And I wanted whatever we were going to, whatever our team identity to be, it had to have some teeth, something that we could hold each other the standard of what that looked like. So we would we have this finished product and I'm a big believer that if if you if you believe in it, you know, if you see it, you believe it. If you believe it, you become it. I wanted to create this thing that we believed in, that we were attached to, and that we could come back to if we needed. So that's what led to um, our bag tags. And, and so we had these bag tags that we created. They were kind of cool. Uh, they're a lot better now because of graphic designs and kids are really creative. But back then it was a pretty basic uh, laminated hard card that we put on our bag and we had a poster that we carried with us to all of our tournaments. So we brought it with us. And I remember at the time no one else was doing this and they were wondering what we were doing. And really what we were doing was just staying connected to what we said was important to us as a group. And that sort of evolved. So when I joined the Team Ontario program, um, I think we were the first program to do it, and, and I kind of moved that forward. So we sat down with our guys, same exercise, and we just said to them, you know, we want to we want to create our team identity and what we believe in and who we are. And, and uh, so what you saw when they left the room, Josh, was we, we had a bag tag on all their bags, and I wanted it to be something that we saw a lot, that we could reconnect with, so we needed to make it present. So we had a poster that we put up every day in our gym, above our bags that were nicely organized against the wall because I believe that we needed to take care of our gear and not just throw it on the floor like we didn't care about it. Uh, and we put one of these tags above the door. And uh, and to me, it was a great opportunity 
when um, if I said to you, you could do something with people that you love, uh, free of any distractions for four or six hours a week, because I started this in club, you would sign up for that. And that was the environment I tried to create, or we tried to create. So the bag tag, one of the bag tags was above the door. My philosophy was, when you come in the gym, you touch the door, you touch our statement, which is what we're all connected with. And then all the problems that we had before we leave behind, and we go into this environment of safety, fun, growth, development, and we push each other for two hours. Because when we leave, all those problems are going to be there anyway. So let's treat our gym as a place that we want to be, where we want to grow, and where the things that are bugging us, we can leave behind. And that's how it started. So with the Team Ontario programs, we did the same thing. And uh, our, our leadership council drove it. We wanted this to be athlete-driven. Uh, this did not come coach down. They would present their, their sum of thoughts to us, to the coaching staff. The coaching staff obviously had to agree because you have to buy into it collectively. And then when we did that, we knew we had our team identity, and that's what we attached ourselves to. And it was a great way to to re-engage the group. So things weren't going the way we wanted at the gym, you know, as opposed to, you know, raising your voice or making them run. We would give them a mental break, go outside, grab a drink, come back in, reconnect, and touch the wall. And often, when we did that, the results were better when they came back. So that's how it started with, with Timo and, and, um, and Durham, and it sort of just grown from there. I'm a big believer that you reflect on what you're doing and, and you try to find a, a better or different way to, to improve it or enhance it. In all the programs I've been involved with at every level, we've done this exercise. Amazing. I mean, because to me, that's one of the biggest challenges as a coach is how do we boil this down to a daily task? I want to win the Olympics. Well, that's four years from now. How are we going to do this Tuesday practice? How are we going to get better at that? And I think having like, like you said, the behaviors, the standards, the characteristics and boiling it down to a daily task is really cool. And then do you also approach these same pillars in practice? Like, are you trying to catch them doing it right when it's like in our sport, because I'm wondering, like, I believe mental performance is a skill and therefore we should practice it. So I'm wondering, how did you attach like the physical response to this stuff too? Well, the, the mental performance side is, is a little bit durable, sorry, a little bit different than the physical engagement. So when we're talking about, you know, these, these values that, you know, what are our beliefs, attitudes, actions, and behaviors? And are they aligned with our goal? You know what I mean? Like, some of this is culture. Well, your culture is a combination of what you create and what you allow. That's what your culture is. And your culture is going to change every year depending on the personalities and the people that are in your program. That's the cool thing about coaching university is you get uh, incredibly you know, dynamic and different personalities that join your program each year. And at the same time, you lose the valued ones that move on. So the hope would be the, the ones that were in your program enhance it and, and pay it forward. And the ones coming in behind understand and embrace it and also make it better in their own way. You know, culture is either enhanced or eroded, and it's often by the people that you bring into your environment. So, you know, for us, it's, uh, and I, I, I'm a big character coach. Uh, I think you know me and, and people that have worked with me. So you know, my Achilles heel as an athlete is someone that, that, that doesn't bring a lot of effort or doesn't have a positive or embracing or growing attitude. You know, that, that's my, that's the person I'm probably going to have the most difficulty with with respect to my coaching philosophy. If you've got a great attitude and you're willing to put in a good effort, we can do a lot of special things. And it doesn't necessarily matter what your physical attributes are. There's a lot of people that you need to make a team successful, and it's not necessarily the 12 people to jump the highest. It's, it's the people that have the highest character 
people that are most attached to the we before me or the, you know, us and not, you know, me. Like, we want people that are about the holistic approach of the team is more important than I am and I'm only going to be as good as we are collectively. So, you know, one of the, a great quote from Dave, and I've got lots of them because I've learned so much from him, but, he, you know, he says this all the time and he couldn't be more accurate. He says, you know, you recruit your own problems. And uh, so if you don't do your homework and, and you don't do a deep dive on someone's character and you get caught in the video trap or the or the excitement of what they are as a physical athlete and not the other stuff, that could be a problem if, if they don't fit or are not aligned with your team's core values. And, you know, in, in Dave's gym prior to my being there, his core values were, were already well established. And, and I think he looks for those types of athletes you know, that are going to embrace them when they come in. And so when we when we look at athletes and when I look at athletes at every level I've ever coached at, the first thing I look at is their character. You know, what type of human being are they? What type of person are they? How do they interact with their coaches, their teammates, their parents? You know, do I see them doing the little details on their own without having to be asked to do them? Because if they have those qualities, I'm confident with the hours of training that we get at the university level, we can make them better players. But if they're already great people, we're off to a heck of a good start. So I don't know if I answered your question specifically because I tend to get on a tangent about this topic. But <laughs> I think, you know, you're going to have a, a good culture. You're going to have a good work ethic. You're going to establish great daily behaviors and standards if everyone's on the same page and believes in what we're doing collectively. Beauty. Yeah, I think you more than covered it for sure. It just reminded me when we had Andrew Hinchy on the show, he talked about when Marquise was his coach and Andrew didn't run down a line shot and Mark pulled him aside being like, is that something you value in your life? Like, what are you doing right now? And Andrew's like, well, I kind of gave up on that ball. He's like, is that something you want to practice? So it, it sounds like there's ways to bring attention to it, but you guys definitely do a great job of just making it a daily task, like I said. And I'm curious for any of our listeners right now, have you ever had anybody push back on this? Have you ever had a provincial team or a national team athlete be like, this is too cheesy. This isn't summer camp for me. Like I'm a high performance athlete. I don't want to sit around and talk about my, my feelings or my standards or because you deliver it with such passion and you explain the value of it. Like is every team you've ever worked on bought in? And I guess because you allow the autonomy that they're picking their behaviors and standards that it really is specific to them. But I'm wondering, has anyone ever fought you on this style? That's a great question. I, I would say that it's gone different directions based on not only the personalities, but the perceptions. And I'll give you a good example. Uh, um, there was a very, very good team I had the fortune of coaching. Uh, in for Team Ontario, it was the 2015 Team Ontario team. Extremely gifted group of athletes. Uh, great coaching staff. I worked with uh, Pat Johnson, PJ Chairless, and Pete Millsap, a great friend. And this, this was an extremely talented group of athletes. Uh, Joanne was on the team, Tainan, Tariq, Jordan Pereira, Sebastian Lethbridge, Jordan Figuera. I could go through the whole roster, Matt Modsley, Charlie Bringlow. It was a fantastic team. The Ontario program was extremely deep that summer. I had the pleasure of working with uh, a peer coach with Nathan Grumbelt. He was on the, at the other staff with Frank Pinkney and Nico Rukavina. Both those teams were very talented. The, the greatest skill that I think we taught them was was a little bit disciplined because they were so good physically and athletically, but I think their details about how to become a high-performance athlete were the areas they were lacking the most in, in terms of, you know, standards and behaviors. They were, on most days, they were good enough to just go play volleyball and win, but I didn't think those were the skills or qualities that were going to make them successful down the road. So 
it was a great experience, and I think we, we definitely were better when we finished it, but we had our bumps along the road, and this was a group that didn't necessarily think they needed to follow all the rules that were important to them because they thought they were good enough to win. They literally articulated that language to us as staff, and we took it upon ourselves to try to send a message that, that the team is bigger than anybody here, and if you don't want to be part of the team, you can leave it at any time. There won't be any bad feelings, but we're not going to allow these standards to drive our behaviors. We want good behaviors, not the ones that are just good enough to win. And um, the difference between summer programs and, and uh, in university is, it's, you know, it's speed dating versus being in a real relationship. You know what I mean? The summer programs, as you know, are so short that I think you're just trying to create and foster and instill high-performance behavior and then reinforce it when you get them again because you don't have them for that long. University is different. It's like, it's a serious commitment to each other. It's four or five years where you can really see this stuff grow. And it's never supposed to be easy. If you care about it and it matters to you, you're going to have your ups and downs, but you're going to find the way. And uh, when you get the right people, you can persevere and overcome anything. Um, but I think you need to have challenging times. Uh, you need to have adversity to develop, sorry, to develop resilience so that when those moments challenge your group, you're ready for the moment. You know, if the first time you face adversity or a challenge in your biggest moment, you're probably not going to succeed. So I think it's healthy. I think you need to have it. And I, 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 I'm not a big guy of conflict, but I'm big on people asking why and I want them to engage and I want them to believe and they need to be part of that process to do that. I think the day of telling athletes there's only one way to do things or it's my way or the highway, you're going to have a short life as a coach. I think if you can instill that you care about them and you develop their trust and you take care of the person first, then you can have some honest and sometimes difficult discussions, but they know that they're coming at them from a strength of care and they perceive those conversations completely differently and grow as a group. Yeah, that reminds me uh, of another story we've had with another guest. Um, and I bring up the mental performance stuff because I think you're you're leading in that. And I think a lot of coaches have stolen some ideas from me. So I wanted to cover that. But full disclosure, you can go technical, tactical with the best of them. And one story I want to bring up that you just mentioned that you're willing to have those conversations and you're willing to go back and forth with an athlete is Seb said, the first time he played for Team Ontario, he had a bunch of stats and he had a bunch of like the game plan was laid out and it was very situational, very scientific, mathematical, all that good stuff. And he said that's not how he thought of the game at the time. And he completely folded up where he mentioned the next time he played for Team Ontario and still had the opportunity to work for you. You let him more feel it and have this free flowing style that more matched his game. So uh, I'm curious, how do you enter that as a coach and really balance the art and science? Because you guys must have worked your tails off to come up with this game plan. but it was it was too much analysis for Sabathrin to handle, and he just didn't perform right. So, how do you find those moments where, like, maybe you believe in, in the the scouting plan you have, but the athletes aren't taking it in? Like, how do you deal with? I don't want to say conflict, but those situations that pop up to make sure the athlete really understands what what you need them to do to execute the game plan. Yeah, first of all, Sebastian's an amazing kid, and I've got some great things to say about him. I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to work with him. But and the, the truth is, it's our responsibility. And, coaches to allow an environment for athletes to be successful and I'm a far better coach today than I was then and I still have a ton to learn and, and I want to learn and I want to get better and so the simple answer is, is with Sebastian he was almost putting too much pressure on himself and some of that was probably coming from us 
and it was our job to find a solution. And I remember it both summers, Sebastian, in my mind, came in as our starting center. And um, the very first year that I coached Sebastian was the very first year I was the head coach of a Team Ontario program, and I made lots of mistakes. And I grew from them, and I'm better for them today. But in the moment, you know, I thought I was doing the right thing, but I don't know that I created an environment of success for him. So clearly, the more pressure, or I wouldn't say pressure, the higher the expectations about certain things that we put on him, we had to foster an environment of growth for him. It was almost stifling. But with him, the second year, and TJ was an influencer in this because he, he knew Seb. And, um, you know, I'm always going to listen to anything that anybody around me says because I value their opinions and we're one coaching staff regardless of title. And uh, I remember the second year, I had Seb two years in a row. He was he was uh, our center on that 2015 team and did an exceptional job for us at the NTCC when we were fortunate enough to win. Um, I remember going in there in his first game, he didn't play well. And I'm sure he was going in this cycle of, oh boy, here we go again. And the dialogue was completely different. I just said to him, Seb, you're our guy, and uh, you're going to start this match. And this was prior to, and he didn't play well. And afterwards, I just told him, you know, you're our guy. And regardless of how things go, I believe in you, and you're going to be our leader. And that's all he needed to hear. And uh, we took the, I wouldn't say we took the reins off, because Sebastian still did the things that we asked him to do, but he got some ownership of how he did them, and that's all he needed, and he flourished. And again, like I said to you, if you're an athlete for three weeks in the summer in a team Ontario program, you're not going to be able to redo their footwork or, or recreate how they release the ball. Yes, you want to leave them with things they can take away and grow from, but you want them to flourish in the environment when it comes time to compete. You know, when I bring it back to mental performance, I try to clear the athlete's minds of things that are barriers for their success. Let them play and unclutter that head. And that's all we did with Sebastian. We just showed some beliefs and, and told him that we had his back. And that was all he needed. And he never looked back. I'm so glad that you mentioned you made mistakes as a head coach. Because I think when I first started coaching, whether it was coaching school or, or club ball, I used to think like, oh, the provincial team coach must be so good. They must have it all figured out. Or national team coaches and Full disclosure on the show, as a national team coach right now, I probably make a mistake, big or small, every week. Like, it's not a perfect science. And then you, you got to try stuff. You got to try to push some buttons. You got to try to design a drill that sometimes stuff just isn't going to work, right? So uh, I'm curious. We've heard Frank St. Denis explain his process for reflection. I was wondering if we could get yours. Um, how do you bounce back from these mistakes? How do you identify you did make a mistake? And then how do you keep progressing in coaching? Because it, it was great, the point you brought up earlier about Dustin Reed, about people staying in this for the long run. But how do you reflect so you know that you have something to continue to work on? And it's not always just, uh, I think lesser coaches always blame the athlete. Oh, the athletes just didn't understand what I wanted them to do. No, as a coach, we fall short sometimes too. How do you reflect and make sure that you're always improving too? Yeah, great question. I got a couple of thoughts on this. And, and so the very first year that I was Team Ontario head coach uh, at the NTCC with a, a bunch of great athletes, we were the younger of the two teams. I coached with uh, Nathan Jansen, who I'm a dear friend of, and, and that was really where our relationships formed. Uh, and Nate Grunzelt helped us towards the end of the program. You want to talk about a mistake, Josh? I did a double sub incorrectly twice in the same game by putting the undoing the double sub and putting the setter in position four instead of one. I did it twice. Okay, didn't even realize I had done it. That's how 
in my own head I was about what I thought I wanted to do versus what I should have tactically done. And for people that were on the outside watching, they were wondering, what the hell was I doing? I, I, was, I was either the world's greatest visionary or just made the biggest coaching blunder you could make. And I did it twice in the same game. And to credit Nathan, who's a dear friend of mine, he didn't say anything to me. He just, you know, we did it. It didn't have a negative effect on the outcome of the game. It was a perplexing decision, of which I've never made again. Um, but I was so overwhelmed by so many things that I actually lost my, my direction. Um, so, yeah, coaches make mistakes. And, and I know that there was criticism of the decisions that I made. And listen, coaching is lonely. If, if, if you are coaching for people's acceptance or you want them to give you uh, praise for what you're doing, you're in the wrong profession. Um, I, I, I'm going to go down two paths here quickly. Is that I think coaches are far too judgmental of other coaches. Um, I think we're very hard on each other as peers. I think that if we could have a more collaborative approach to growing each other, we'd be more successful. Um, I've been so fortunate to work with so many great coaches, and, and I work with one daily with Coach Preston, and, uh, and and all the coaches that I've worked with in the national team system, I, and all the way from the club level, from every coach I've ever been around, whether it be a Madawaska, Durham Attack, OVA, anywhere, I've always tried to surround myself with people that were going to make me better and inspire me. I don't have ego in the game. I don't think I'm better than anybody. I'm certainly going to take the opportunity to learn from them, though, if it can help me grow. But if we can just be more supportive and more collaborative and be okay admitting somebody's good at something and trying to figure that out, I think we'd be a better overall profession. That's my coaching rant. Now, to get to your reflection, because you brought that up, and this is, I so believe in this. So I changed my, my, the order of my R's. I call them the three R's, Josh. And that's reflect, react, and respond. And um, when I was younger, I was a reactionary coach. Uh, I, I, you know, I wanted to fix things right away. Um, I think some of that was to do with my professional background, being a, in the fire service for 30 years. That's a, that's a profession where you have a problem, you've got to solve it quickly. So I think I was very reactionary. Um, so I would, you know, I would react first, good or bad, and then I would respond, you know, good or bad, and then I would reflect. Well, I've tried to switch the order of, of my R's if the circumstance allows because some things are time compressed. But now I'm a big believer of reflecting first if I can, um, deciding how I want to react, and then responding. And I think for all of us, if we wanted to just go down that exercise and sort of look at our R's in our own life and how we manage those, it might allow us to take a little bit more time to actually take in all the factors that affect our response, and then and then have the most formative and positive reaction, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? So that's been a big journey for me. And every time I'm involved in any program, I want to grow from it. I want feedback. It's okay. I, I want to know what you think. I want to know how I can grow, and I want you to tell me, because I'm not going to get any better if you don't. And I know that makes you a little bit vulnerable, but if you have confidence in yourself as a person, and you're doing it for the right reasons, feedback's a good thing. And I think that's for athletes. And I think that's for coaches. And, and I really try to embrace this this philosophy now about when I work with athletes. And in the last five months, I got to work uh, at the NEP program, which was a tremendous opportunity for me. And I work with tremendous athletes daily in, in our gym at Master. Is when it comes to their learning and their development, uh, my, my, fear, my feedback theory is this. 
know, I want them to embrace feedback. You know, it doesn't mean they have to take it, but I want them to be open to it. I just want them to open up their ears and mind long enough to just entertain what I'm suggesting. And I want them to explore it on their own. You know, I want them to, I want them to feel it. I want them to think about it. I want them to watch some video. If it's, if it's a technical thing I see, if it's a tactical thing, because I want them to own their growth. And then they can choose if they want to apply it. And what I mean by that is, is that I plant the seed with you and I do it in a way that I let you explore it and then you go see it, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to agree or disagree. Those are both healthy exercises. But if it leads to us talking about a solution, then that's growth. And we can apply that together. And, uh, and there was lots of situations when I was at NEP, I could just bring my laptop over to a guy and show him something and say, you know, I want you to look at these clips the night before. Let's look at, let's look at them together the next day. Tell me what you see. Um, and often they would they would have solutions or the observations on their own, and then we could move that forward together. That's a far more positive environment to learn it. And uh, you know, especially with video, because if you don't explain to athletes how to watch video, they tend to focus on the things they're doing well. So try to create environments where there was examples of where they were doing it extremely well, areas where they weren't doing it maybe as well as they wanted to, and finding the solution between the two. And developing this relationship where you can talk to an athlete one-on-one and, and get somewhere pretty quickly because they know that you care about them and, and they know that you've done your homework and these conversations can be productive. So that's sort of my feedback philosophy. Of course, I'm always evaluating and reflecting on that. The one I've come to recently, but I really think that we need our athletes to own their growth and development, especially high-performance athletes that are provided so much opportunity, but opportunity doesn't do anything for you if you aren't willing to take advantage of that opportunity and move forward yourself. Amazing. Amazing. So, so thankful for the answers you've given so far. And I'm curious, uh, the NEP program, how did you get uh, involved in that program? Because I think it's a great concept and it's a great thing that uh, Dan Lewis and Team Canada is doing to give these athletes an opportunity to train when the world's uh, a bit of a pause right now. But you also mentioned like just the coaching conversations that must be going on there with people like yourself, Dan Lewis, uh, Foshe's there, Scott Kosky's there. I'm forgetting people. Lionel is a great stats person. Like there's, there's so many great minds there and great players. So just let us know how did the opportunity come up for you to be a part of the Gatineau program and then maybe some benefits that you've gotten in your own development from just being in that environment. She's the uh, athletic therapist and she's incredible. 
opportunity to pick his brain when it comes to mental performance. Um, that's worth doing. And then working daily with Dan. And, you know, the truth is, is when you work with a lot of great coaches, the similarities they, they have, they want the same things, they just have a different way to get there. And I, the more you work with different people that are great at things, I think it allows you to put it in your own coaching toolbox. And those are, everyone has to be their own authentic version of themselves. So I think, you know, you have to take ideas or concepts and then make them your own if you believe in them, but don't try to be somebody else because that's difficult to pull off. So uh, NEP, I was great. I worked there for four months and then I, I uh, came home over the break and then just went back for the first uh, month of the last uh, um, program because uh, we were still shut down at Mac. Um, and then I came back because we reopened the Mac. And I came back. So I was there for five of the last six months. Um, yeah, I think the greatest takeaways I got from NEP are, are working with uh, incredible athletes that are, that are shared in their alignments of their goals. So that's always nice to be in that environment. Um, seeing, I, I think, principles and ideas delivered in different ways is always kind of cool because you can always learn from that. Um, and just being in a, in a high-performance environment daily tends to raise the bar for everyone there, which is kind of exciting. For me, the real test is, you know, when you leave that environment, do you go back and make your own program better for what you've learned, or do you revert back to who you were before? Because I think that tells us a lot about the athlete. But only time will, will tell us what that looks like. So, um, yeah, I'm very fortunate to be there. Um, grateful to Dan that allowed me the opportunity. Working with Dan was good. He was... He was open. He was collaborative. He wanted me to get involved. He encouraged me to have a voice. Um, he gave me responsibility, which I appreciated, and, uh, and and just gave me an opportunity to flourish in that environment. And, and I hope and believe that it's allowed me to grow as a person and and to hopefully become a better coach for the athletes that I work with in the future. Now, obviously, you've had skills at this because you've been coaching of other programs and then gone on to be a, a, a provincial team coach or a national team coach. But uh, I'm curious how does either Glenn or Dan kind of set the standard that you're Ian and you're a McMaster coach, but you're still going to coach up uh, a Mac guy the exact same you would coach up like Stephen or Johnny, who we just recently had the show, or my guy Pierce Johnson. Like, you're still going to be professional. And I'm wondering, does Volleyball Canada set that tone or do they just hire guys like you that are so professional that it doesn't matter if the guy goes to... Mac, Alberta, Thompson Rivers, Windsor, like you're going to coach them the same. Yeah, I, I don't know what Volleyball Canada's official processes and this is, but I'm, I'm sure they're pretty particular about who they bring into their programs. Um, I can tell you that in any gym, that in most gyms that I've worked with, um, you know, the colors of where you came from are not flowing there. When you go into a national team gym or Team Ontario gym, it's, it's a holistic environment where it doesn't matter where you came from, we're here for the same reasons now. You put the Canada you know, shirt on or the Ontario shirt on, it's the same thing. Um, and, and the truth of the matter is, you have to look at yourself in, in the mirror every day and ask yourself, why am I here? And for me, I've always been about the growth of the athlete and, and for the collective weight in any environment I've ever been in. I think you start blurring those lines and that, that speaks a lot about who you are as a person. And I think if you show those values and they're not aligned with what it's supposed to be like, I don't think you're going to coach at those levels. So, um, in the, my goal at NEP was to support the vision of the program and the head coach and to collectively uh, provide valuable feedback to each of the players so they could grow regardless of where they're from or where they go back to. Um, and, and I believe in that philosophy. I'm totally fine with that philosophy. And, and the truth of the matter is, the better that we make everybody, the, the better 
better our sport is, the higher quality that, that we compete at. And I, I think that's good. Um, this idea of I'm not going to tell this athlete something because I think it's going to allow them to be successful down the road and we may have to play you is that's just ridiculous. Um, but no, I, I, uh, I truly value those principles and, and I think I can lean back on my close to 30 years in the sport at, at different levels and, and I've kind of been the same guy all the way along but just wore a different hat. Awesome. Awesome to hear. And then uh, I can edit this part out if it's too personal, but I feel like it's a missed opportunity to not bring up what you and Kyle were discussing. So I was wondering if you could share maybe just some conversations or the takeaways without sharing any obviously stuff about the athletes or anything personal, but with two guys really passionate about mental performance and and our sport, I was curious, uh, what were some of those conversations and what were some things that you could take away? Yeah, I I do think the biggest reason that I gravitate to Kyle as much as I do is because we I value his expertise in an area that I'm trying to grow in as a person, and I truly think is a is a big pillar of who I am as a coach. And you know, I, I don't think it's our job to find excuses for athletes, and uh, I think it's our job to provide solutions and have honest conversations and push them to be the best versions of themselves. And, and a lot of the conversations that that Kyle and I had were about creating high performance environments or high performance daily behaviors about all of the things you do in your life. And, and trying to avoid the traps of complacency or apathy or or ego or or all the sort of culture killers or pitfalls that get in the way of your success. And you know, Kyle is brilliant at this, and and I appreciate his professionalism and sharing and his his honesty to grow um, allow me to grow as a coach. Because if you ask Kyle anything, he'll take the time for you, which I wasn't going to pass up on that opportunity. And I used a lot of my own personal values, experiences, and knowledge, and then picked his brain and, and tried to enhance my knowledge about how I can allow an athlete to perform better from a mental level, but how I can create an environment in our gym where we're pushing them, you know, on the right balance for them to grow without creating a complacent environment where we're stagnating their development. And, and this is going to change depending on where you coach, but the conversation and context we're talking about now is, you know, at the national team level or, or at university level, you know, at, at the highest programs where they're pushing or demanding, well, I wouldn't say demanding, I would say where they're trying to embrace these values in their own in their own programs. Um, so, you know, Kyle has obviously had a huge impact on the, on the success of our national team program. And I think uh, he's going to be a big part of the success moving forward. So I wasn't going to miss an opportunity to have sort of deep chats about what, an athlete's, you know, roadmap looks like how we get them there and, and sort of the non-technical skills and more of the mental side skills that are going to allow them to succeed at the next level. Lots of athletes have great physical attributes. What tends to separate them at the highest levels is their capacity to play well in difficult environments. So if we don't develop mental resilience and the skills to allow them to be successful, that we can help them through now, that they can understand and manage later when they need to be able to do it, we're probably not providing them the, the greatest, you know, framework for them to reach the level that they want to get to. So, uh, you know, I do a lot of time watching, co- or, sorry, uh, Josh in the gym. Um, I've, I've learned to talk less, even at times I still talk more than I want to, and I talk way less than I ever used to in the gym. And I actually become a better coach by talking less and watching and listening more. It's amazing what you can pick up on when you uh, when you switch the ratio of how much you uh, talk to listen. And I do a lot of watching our own program at Mac, 
of what we play and how we carry ourselves and, and sort of where I think we are. And can I get a player back, you know, with their mindset where they need to be in the moment? And, uh, and I certainly did a lot of that when I was at the NEP program. But it's amazing the takeaways you can get from that. I feel like we covered a lot of topics. I definitely got a lot out of it and I, I learned a lot, but uh, yeah, you're going to have to come back on because I feel like there's so many more stories to tell and, and stuff that we can talk about. But for now, we'll, we'll wrap it up. But one thing we've made a tradition on the show is just somebody like you who's been involved in every layer of our show and you're now involved in high performance coaching, but man, something funny or crazy or odd must have happened along the way. So I was hoping you give us one more great story and just give us a laugh before we let you go. Sure. Well, I have a lot that's going to have to be edited, so I'll go with a clean version. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how funny you're going to find it. It was more embarrassing, but it was hilarious at the time. So I'm going to take you back to the uh, FIB event uh, in Toronto. It's on a beautiful Sunday. It's uh, right after the finals take place. It's packed. Labatt is our sponsor. And, and I'm the one that's doing um, sort of a lot of the promotional spots. And I have this sort of send off at the end of the day where I sort of wrap up, thank our sponsors, and, you know, the whole closure of the day. And I've got my, I've got my big radio voice on and I'm booming across Ashbury's Bay. And, and I remember saying to like, and there was thousands of people there, and, you know, it's a hot night, so there's no taking it back. And, you know, so I, I get on there and I'm taking our sponsors and I finish with, and this is after, you know, the bat is sold a fair amount of product, if you know what I mean, on the beach and uh, everyone's having a good time. And, and I, I wrap up with, you know, thanks for coming to the FIBB event in Toronto. We want to thank our sponsors, blah, blah, blah. And remember, if you've been drinking, drive safely. And Oris looks at me like, and what I was supposed to say, obviously, is if you've been drinking, don't drive. And literally, like, I couldn't take it back. I saw a blast over, like, 3,000 people, and within minutes, not even minutes, uh, phone ringing, uh, radios going off, and everyone's like, what the hell? And I bet, hey, you know, obviously you've been drinking, don't drive. And there I am sending everybody off. We want to thank you for coming. And remember, if you've been drinking, drive, stay clean. And I was like, so embarrassed, but it was actually hilarious at the time. It may not be funny to you, but it was funny then, and I'll, I'll never forget that day because... John always found a silver lining and everything, but he came up to me and he's like, whoa, I'm not sure how well that would go with the sponsors. So, yeah, that's a, a funny uh, moment that I like to take back. And and that, that happened live in front of thousands of people, so I couldn't take it back. Uh, it's funny now. I'm sure at the time it wasn't a big kick, but that, that's definitely funny now. And, and thank you so much for, one, coming on the show. I think it's been great to finally connect. And sorry I had to start a podcast so you and I could finally connect. But uh, it's great to hear about everything you've accomplished. And I thought I had an understanding of your career and your pathway, but uh, there's a lot I missed there. And I want to thank you for sharing it because no matter how people know you in our community, I think they would learn something from this episode. And it's it's great. Definitely a lot of takeaways, but uh, more to come. I'm teasing it right now. There's going to be a part two somewhere down the road because uh, we, we haven't covered enough yet, I don't think. Well, I appreciate you having me, Josh, and I say this to people all the time. Um, the two greatest things that volleyball has given me in my life are friendships and memories. So I think I'm the, the one that should be grateful, and I do feel that. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't take an opportunity to say, I think what you're doing here on the pod is amazing. Um, you've kept our sport current and relevant, and, and in a time where we are not getting as much volleyball on the courts of one, these venues are great opportunities for people to connect with the sport that we love. So kudos to you, and I appreciate you taking the time to spend time with me today. But keep doing what you're doing because you're making a difference here. Well, thanks, my friend. I appreciate that. My pleasure.